0: Good evening everyone, um, <laughs> um, it's a pleasure to welcome those of you who weren't at the conference today uh, to this panel session and for our conference delegates welcome as well. Uh, my name is Elspeth Proben, I'm the Professor of Gender and Cultural Studies and along with Bill, Alana and Our wonderful team um, uh, have been um, organising this for a while and very happy to have the assistance of Meredith Hall and the wonderful Sydney Ideas um, lecture series. Now um, before I begin, um, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, um, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And it's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is plonked. If you look over there, that's Victoria Park, which was a very important corroboree site. So we pay respects to the past um, elders and the present and future leaders. Now, um, this panel is um, going to be a wonderful, stimulating... Uh, smorgasbord of ideas Uh, I'm going to introduce all of the speakers right now and then they'll each speak for about 20 minutes and then we'll open the floor to questions so starting with uh, my colleague Bill Pritchard Uh, Bill is associate professor in human geography specializing in agriculture food and rural places He's interested in the ways that global and local processes are transforming places, industries, and people's lives. He remains a skeptical internationalist, uh, believing in the promise of a better world, but frustrated by the obstacles that beset this objective. Bill's undertaken research for a number of leading national and international organizations, and his work is cited widely within professional circles. He's the author of three books, an editor of another four, and has published around a half century of articles and chapters. Um, He's been engaged in many consulting research, and since 2004 has been involved in a series of research projects on rural issues and food security in India. In 2013, uh, Bill spoke at the TEDx conference at the Sydney Opera House. He's the chair of the node of the Sydney Environment Institute that has organized this the Food, People, and Planet node. And he's also co chair of the Global Food and Nutritional Security Research node of the Charles Perkins um, Center. John Ingram, who gave us um, absolutely stunning um, kickoff to our conference, Um, and for those of you who missed it, um, I suggest um, you try and find his work, Um, gained extensive experience during the 1980s working in East and South Africa and South Asia in agriculture, forestry, and agroecology. Uh, Research projects. In 1991, he was recruited by UK's Natural Environment Research Council to help organise and coordinate research on global change and um, agroecology as part of the International Geosphere Biosphere Programme. In 2001, he was appointed Executive Officer for the Earth System Science Partnerships Joint Project Global Environmental Change and Food Systems. On the close of GECA, how do you pronounce it, is that an acronym? GCAF. GCAF, so I like that. Uh, In 2011, he became uh, NERC's food security leader. And since May 2013, he's led the food systems program at the University of Oxford's Environmental Change Institute. And we are very happy to have Debbie Hunt here from Oxfam, who has stepped in at the last minute for a colleague who's sick. Debbie's been New South Wales and ACT state campaigner and engagement coordinator for Oxfam Australia for the last four years. In this role, Debbie is responsible for the rollout of campaigns on a number of issues, including indigenous health, labor rights, gender justice, international aid and development, as well as climate change and food security. Debbie has um, a Bachelor of Politics and Policy and a Masters of Social Change and Development in which she specialised in food security and rural sustainable development. Uh, She not only has an academic knowledge in this area, but practises her knowledge on climate change adaptation um, in her small organic fruit and nut farm on the Southern Highlands in New South Wales where she lives with her family. So, um, a a wonderful gathering um, and I'd like you to uh, welcome Bill, who is going to start off.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Elspeth. I'll just... Great. Okay. Um, Thank you, Elspeth. It's always... uh slightly embarrassing when someone reads out your CV for you, but uh, hopefully I will uh, do some justice to this important topic. It's a daunting task to speak about climate change and the food system at a global level. And I say it's daunting because what we're trying to do with this debate is to try and capture and hold down a huge amount of variables, many of which we don't really know much about, and I'll go through that in my presentation today. One thing I don't think we can uh, doubt, which way do I point this, Michelle? Apologies, everyone. Can someone manually, can you press the... We'll try it again. That's good organisation having a spare clicker, isn't it? Let's see if this one works. Ah, thank you. Um, one thing that... Uh, I'll go back to where I was. Uh, it's a daunting task because we have a whole range of variables, many of which we don't know much about. One variable that uh, I think we can confidently say... Uh, is happening and that's the reality of climate change. Now this graph is the most recent estimate of the global air-sea temperatures uh, undertaken by NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. Um, You can see I accessed it just a few days ago. It uses the accepted practice of measuring temperatures in terms of the anomaly from the base period of 1951 to 80. So therefore what this graph is showing is the um, is that global temperatures at the moment in 2014 are sitting at about approximately 0.6 degrees Celsius above that base period. And if we take it back further to 1880, the first year on this graph, the temperature anomaly is about 0.8 degrees Celsius. Now, the first great variable and element of uncertainty we confront, I guess, looking at this graph here, is how this trend is going to manifest itself in future years. Now, in light of the accumulated stored energy from previous and current warming, most of which is in the oceans, there's consensus that the temperature anomaly will continue. Um, The pace of this increase, however, is what we don't quite know, Um, and it will be shaped, of course, by temperature forcing through the the continued expansion of greenhouse gas emissions. the evidence is only getting clearer on the anthropogenic basis of um, global climate change. The quote I've got up on the screen there comes from the IPCC's Fifth Assessment Report, which uh, synthesis report, which was released earlier this month. The point I make is that for the IPCC, uh, an organisation always in the public eye, language is bullets. They don't overstate s- any situation. So what? Uh, what you can see in that quote is that they say it is extremely likely to have, uh, that uh, human influence has been extremely likely to have been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid 20th century. And so when the IPCC says it's extremely likely, uh, we can consider that as an authoritative statement backed by an enormous amount of science. Now this much I think we all know, I mean hopefully I'm not saying too much that's uh, not known in this room today. Um, I don't want to go over the coals, that's a pun, on the anthropogenic forcing of climate change. But what I do want to do is to say that we've got to use this as a starting point for um, the question of how these kind of trends are going to manifest themselves in terms of our global food system and the broader question of global food and nutrition security. Now, in the wider community, there's a, a great deal of, uh, I guess, confusion about the term either food security or food and nutrition security. And all too often, people equate this with the idea of food production alone. A community or a country is often held to be food secure if it stockpiles a lot of food or if it stops its farms from being bought by foreigners or some permutation on those events. But in the international sense, and uh, for those of you who are at the uh, at the Agri-Food Conference today, uh, John Ingram said this quite well, um, in the international sense, based on the work of the FAO and others, it refers to a food system in which all people at all times have access uh, to, safe, to sufficient safe and nutritious food to maintain a healthy and active life. So in other words, it's equally not just about production, but about access to food, bringing in politics, bringing in culture and economics. Um, and in terms of food, food utilisation, bringing up such questions as nutrition, hygiene and the like, and good health. So when we think about the relationship between climate change and food, much of the debate instinctively focuses on what a future world climate means for crop yields, agricultural systems, etc., which is all very true, but it isn't the whole truth. Um, What we need to do is also understand the wider eddies and feedback loops between what will happen on farms and what that will mean to the populations that depend on that food, how those changes are going to reverberate across the farming and non-farming communities of the planet. And so, to appreciate the breadth of these processes, an overarching perspective is required. And I think if we have an overarching perspective, from that we're able to distill some of the detail of the, uh, this complex issue. So, I'm going to start here. As you can see, uh, I'm going to build up this diagram through this talk. But the first problem, which I've uh, sort of rehearsed somewhat already, is a changing climate what will it look like? And clearly, in terms of, particularly with respect to food, it's going to embody a whole range of different weather and climate related processes. Um, That's why we simply don't refer to this as global warming, but it is climate change because it implies changes to precipitation, changes to extreme weather events, changes to the the concentration or dispersal of rainfall across growing seasons. Um, And it has uh, obviously implications too Uh, arising from global sea level rise which is, you know, not a climate effect in itself but is a manifestation of of climate change. So how does this relate to food system? Well let's start here with agricultural production. Now there's an enormous variety of crops and agricultural products produced around the world and those different crops and products in different places will have different sets of interactions with a changing climate. Focusing firstly on uh, this, this the global sense of this. Um, you know, I'm a geographer. I love maps, and this map tells me quite a bit. It's probably a little bit difficult to read from uh, where you're sitting there, but in a sense, uh, this is a this 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 is a summary account published by the World Bank of forecasts for 11 major crop foods, premised on the mean of three different climate models. So it's a synthesis map of how climate might affect yields. Um, And in general, without going into a lot of the footnotes, um, in areas that are green and darker green, there's a likely potential positive effect on yields. And in areas of reds and browns, there will be a negative effect. And if you look at that map just for a while, and it's it's obvious that it's apparent that the yield effects of climate change are going to have much greater resonance in the tropics. And of course, this is characterised, of course, of a place in which populations are higher, higher proportions of that population are agriculturally dependent and populations are in general material senses less well off. So the first thing we can say about the, uh, uh, the way in which climate change might be affecting uh, food production is it's going to make those in a general sense most vulnerable on the planet even more at the forefront of change. And this is uh, borne out, too, by these graphs here. And again, I apologise for the complexity of this slide, but I think it's important to put it here. This comes from the IPCC uh, Assessment Report 5, published earlier this year. Um, They show forecasted impacts on three cereal crops, maize, wheat, and rice, in both tropical and temperate areas. And uh, what this is is an amalgam of different studies uh, looking at these different crops in different climatic regions, looking at uh, expectations of different levels of global temperature rise, Uh, sorry, local temperature rise in their growing areas. And of course different studies will produce different results and what this does is aggregate those results. Um, And it's here, and you've heard people refer to dangerous climate change, which is often taken to be about an increase of 2 degrees C, but um, there is some... contention about what dangerous climate change actually is, but it's clear here that according to these models, the consensus seems to be that once you get to about 2 degrees Celsius increase, you're starting to have quite dramatic uh, reductions in most cases on yield. I should also say that the brown and blue lines here uh, assume... um, uh, they respectively mean the mean of whether crop systems are going to be... Uh, where farmers in those crop systems are going to adapt to change or not. So the blue lines, which tend to be a bit higher, is an assumption of successful adaptation. The brown lines is no ap- adaptation. The ad- concept of adaptation is quite complex, which I'll come to a bit later on. Um, and uh, some of these graphs, the sort of lines look a bit flat, or in some cases positive, but it's important to sort of think through, particularly from the two degrees onwards slant. Um, and. If we think about some of these uh, forecasted manifestations of changes to crop yields, they're really quite dramatic. Negative yield effects of 10% and 20% respectively in the temperate and tropical zones for maize. For rice, decreases of about 10% in the temperate zones and a mixed bag in the tropics. And for wheat, sort of treading water in the temperate zones and a complete wipeout in the tropics. The wheats, uh, wheat in the tropics is the one on the far right of that slide, from your perspective. Now. Um, I I think it's important that we don't just see graphs like this and accept them, that we sort of think through what they're really saying. Um, And indeed, when the IPCC published these data, there was a considerable degree of public debate about them. And some people have said, well, yes, you know, in the 20th century, there was a prospect of declining yields and the Green Revolution came along. And uh, the 20th century is, of course, noted now as a period of dramatic improvements in uh, food production, there's no doubt about that. We can talk about the environmental impacts perhaps at a different time, but in terms of aggregate food production, you know, the world's farmers grew a hell of a lot more through the 20th century, and people have said, well, maybe, you know, that's going to happen again. Farmers are smart. But I'd probably say two things about what these graphs indicate, and that is firstly the Green Revolution was very much hinged on hybrids of particular cereal crops that were well suited to fossil fuel-based agronomic inputs. So you added the right sort of mixture of chemicals and fertilizers, and what that led to was massive increases in yields, um, the work of Norman Borlaug, etc. Um, the problem in the 21st century is we're at a time where that sort of fossil fuel based solution is hard to imagine. Um, it, 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 the, the, the way in which technology relates to agriculture now in a time of increasing Um, input prices is very different. So the scenario of the 20th century is not necessarily the right model to think about the 21st century. The second point I make is at the time that the Green Revolution kicked in, yields were going up. It's just that the sort of new technologies gave it a fillip. If we're talking about this scenario, any great technological improvements have got to combat a declining trend because of the negative impacts on climate and from climate. And I think that's... uh, It sort of gives me, as a researcher, a sense that... A technological fix is potentially around the horizon, but let's not wait for it. This is perhaps an optimistic reading of the future. And of course, the solution to any of this has to come at a time where we have to have, where we've got maybe 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. So the resource constraints, the planetary constraints are going to be very much on, very much more severe. So moving on from this slide, if there's a series of problems about feeding the world's planet through production, I guess I raised a moment ago the concept of adaptation. Um, Is it possible for farmers to do better things uh, on their farms to safeguard their livelihoods and their production systems? And of course, there is that prospect. Adaptation is occurring now. Farmers are adapting to climate change as we speak and they'll continue to do so. There's no two ways about it. Um, um, But when we talk about adaptation, I think the important point to make here is that adaptation is, is very uneven in its social and economic manifestations. Um, Effective adaptation tends to require access to knowledge, robust systems of agricultural extension, investment in capacity building, a lot of the things that are actually being defunded by governments around the world at the moment or put in the hands of the private sector, and I'm not against the private sector, but perhaps being motivated by different interests than, you know, the people, the interests of the people at the front line most vulnerable to climate change. and so, you know, I mean, if we think in Australia, I mean, I would argue the whole reform process of the Murray-Darling is an example of climate adaptation. You know, we're we're, we're putting caps on water, we're increasing the price of water although I dare say this current federal government mightn't explicitly admit it per se, it's on the basis of forecasted assumptions that the Murray-Darling is going to get a hell of a lot drier. So in a sense, we're forcing adaptation on our farmers in that region as a result. Um, But that kind of national-led, clever adaptation metric that's going on in a place like Australia kind of doesn't occur in other parts of the world. Um, And where it does, it probably benefits only some farmers, not the majority. In that sense, I think one of the great Um, interesting developments of the last few years has been the concept of climate-smart agriculture. This is a term that is contested by some, and some people see it as a continuation of a technological treadmill of solutions, but it seems to me to be uh, a suite of processes that put climate and the needs of adaptation central on-farm systems. And I've got here a, a this is one of many studies of climate-smart agriculture that have been published in recent years. This one was done just a few months ago, in fact, in the last month, I think, where, um, you know, researchers went out and they looked at Costa Rica. Costa Rica, you can see there, there's a uh, forecast increases in annual mean temperatures of potentially up to two degrees by the year 2030 and potentially a drying out of that landscape, the forecast that changes to precipitation. Uh, so, The climate scientists have gone in and said, what do we know about the likelihood over the next few decades of what's happening in Costa Rica? We've then had the agricultural scientists, the social scientists come in and look at the major agricultural systems of that country, pineapple, banana, coffee, uh, cattle, the last one is all agriculture, and tried to work out what are the key tipping points that will need change to cope with the changed climate environment. This kind of investment in research which is not happening everywhere around the world, but is gathering pace, I think is evidence of um, the potential to address at least some of the negative impacts of climate change on the food system through smart investment and research. And I think we have to realise, and this is a point that um, I'm sort of very passionate about too, that when we talk about climate adaptation in agriculture, maybe a lot of it's not to do with agriculture at all. A lot of the smallholder farmers of the world Farm but have other livelihood pursuits as well. So perhaps when we're talking about making smallholder farmers more climate adaptable, it's providing better jobs for them in non growing seasons, providing different livelihood streams, etc. It's those kind of debates, that wider and strategic thinking about climate change adaptation that is occurring, needs to occur more, and uh, needs to occur quickly. Um, because I think the point is, no, this is implicit in what I've said. Um, adaptation's not scale neutral. Larger farmers, farmers in developed countries, farmers with access to extension services and the like are much more better positioned than some others. Okay, let's move on. So if that's the question of adaptation um, and the sort of implications potentially arising from that, then we might take the argument a bit step further and say that, well, if adaptation possibilities are unequally spread amongst a population and potentially some of the more vulnerable Members of that population are more at risk from losing their agricultural-based livelihoods. What's that going to mean for broader society? For trends like rural-urban migration, the sustainability of the rural sector, etc. And here I'm going to refer to um, work done in India, um, and this is um, this is done by the. Uh, uh, climate Change, Agriculture and Food Security Group, which has been very prominent in this area for many years now. Uh, and they've used a whole range of different indicators globally to try and identify hotspots of change. And um, uh, this this map, which comes from a 2011 publication of theirs, I think is uh, quite an important map for particularly our part of the world, the sort of Southeast Asia and South Asian regions, because what they do in this map is they've got a series of colour codings basically asking questions about in terms of agriculture how are you exposed to climate change like what are the forecasts of temperature rise heat, spri- heat spikes precipitation growing season changes to precipitation what will that mean to your ability to farm and then secondly um, how vulnerable how sensitive are you to that like have you got a lot of smallholder farmers who are poor not attached to extension services and the like So from the basis of linking the climate science and the social science together, they try and map areas of high sensitivity, low sensitivity, high exposure, low exposure, et cetera. And the point I want to uh, address here is much of... If you look at India there, most of India is blue, which indicates that much of India is probably um, not too badly placed with regard to the physical parameters of climate change, um, but its capacity to react because of its... Uh, because of the sort of highly impoverished nature of a smallholder farmer base is very low. But you can see there up towards the Himalayas in northwest India and going up to Pakistan in the traditional granary belt of north India, that's high red. It's a double whammy of high sensitivity to climate change, low ability to cope. This area is already extremely stressed at an environmental level with, decimate, with water tables being decimated, with. Um, the traditional rice-wheat rotation system coming under threats of all kinds and the sort of traditional green revolution type solutions um, not increasing yields in the last few years. And so the point I want to make about that is that area is probably one of the most important agricultural regions on the planet because uh, the wheat and rice grown in northwest India and into Pakistan sort of filters through and feeds the subcontinent to a greater or lesser degree. Um, And so you've got an enormous... I see this area as the canary in the coal mine when it comes to food security and um, climate because I think what's going to happen there will reverberate very, very much globally. Okay, so let's move on. I've only got a few minutes left. If we sort of say there will be different permutations of this dynamic across different parts of the world, we then sort of say, well, what does this mean at an even broader level? What does it mean for urban populations? What does it mean for national governments? And I think... Um, clearly, if there are going to be problems in the ability of large sort of mass production agri-export regions like uh, northwest India to supply surpluses of food to be redistributed to cities, um, that's going to feed into higher food prices. And the IPCC report has a range of uh, estimates by economists on this, but it has medium confidence that we're going to see quite substantial increases in food prices right up to the year 2050. Um, That might be good for some farmers, um, but it's probably going to be very bad for many of the world's world's urban populations or farmers who aren't necessarily selling to the market but in various combinations of semi-subsistence. And, of course, we know there's a well-rehearsed story about what's happened in the last few years When prices of food spiked in about 2007-08, there was a whole range of food rights in different countries around the world. The Arab Spring of 2011 has often been associated with higher food prices in that part of the world. There is very much a dynamic of this. And um, moving on just to finish up, if we're going to have social upheaval of different kinds, without being too deterministic about it, governments are going to be wanting to act. Um, But in times of crisis, uh, the ability of governments to act to take mitigating effects, to try and roll back some of these changes is very much more difficult. So in conclusion, what we know that is, is that climate change is happening. It'll have dramatic effects on the circumstances upon which we grow our food and from how, and from how people access their food. I find it heartening to some extent that a lot of investment in things like climate-smart agriculture have been occurring in recent years, but it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we need to do. But I feel sometimes... Ironically, as our knowledge of these processes increases, the political will to act recedes, and um, I can't help being partisan somewhat. It seems to me that in a rich country like Australia, in the peak of an economic boom, if Tony Abbott could scare the Australian population into the idea that a carbon tax would provide an unbearable um, sort of reduction in our living standards, I fail to see how effective mitigation is going to occur in countries around the world that are in much poorer and much more economically difficult situations. So, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Bill. And John?
2: Good. Well, um, hello, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to literally follow what's just been said, but follow, follow the story through. Bill's given a great um, introduction to what's going on with climate system, how it's going to be affecting food supply, food production, and some of the adaptation options. Uh, another part of the story, which I'll, which I'll now begin to explore, is so what in terms of us um, as our, we are consumers. Um, And also the fact that we have a number of choices in the future. Um, The first graph that Bill showed was a plot of measured uh, temperature change for the globe. The plot on the right are some scenarios um, which the the color of the line, uh, the pathway depends very much on societal choice. And what we need to do is think about the consequences of business as usual which is effectively an increase in uh, consumption, an increase in wealth linked to increase in uh, change in diet, an increase in population, and these sorts of things that we'll touch on. So we need to think about the so what in terms of um, not only the impact um, of the food system on environment and on climate in particular, but on ourselves and on our health and on our society. So uh, Bill voiced this uh, definition, here it is written, and I've put in bold some of the key words in my opinion, um, which is uh, that food security is about access to food. Um, It's not only about food production. Food production is very important, but the fact that I, um, I don't actually grow food, but I'm relatively food secure, is because I have economic, social, and physical access to what I want. And this definition, is is applicable um, around the world. It's applicable for arguably for the globe. It's also applicable across a number of spatial and temporal levels going down to the individual, certainly to the household level. And it's as applicable in in an African village context as as here in in Sydney. The second point is that um, it's more than food production. I've said that already, but I'm gonna underline that by just pointing out that in the definition from the Food and Agriculture Organization, we don't actually see the word agriculture, nor do we see the word production. So there's been a step change in uh, a move that acknowledges the importance of production, but steps beyond the productionist paradigm in this definition and puts it very much more in terms of, of us as individuals and our ability to have food and get access to food as we need. And the third point is that the food security is a state or a condition that we aspire to. And we do that, we aspire to it by doing a number of activities which effectively uh, encompassed within the food system. And here they are in cartoon form, uh, producing, Bill's been talking about, very important, whether it's uh, food from the sea, whether it's food from the land. But at the right hand end, we've got consuming. So we are all actors in this picture at some stage. There are a lot of livelihoods involved. Um, The caricature is with trucks and money, but it could be with with donkeys and an exchange of labor. Um, But the fact of the matter is um, everywhere in the world, this set of activities happens to some degree in markedly different ways. But nonetheless, all these things happen. And the question that we ask is how the um, outcomes of those activities really contribute to food security. So here in this diagram, I've, I've unpacked the definition into a number of circles, which are the major components of food security, food access, utilization, and availability, and the notion that these need to be stable over time for food security to be met. Now, in each circle, you'll see a number of bullet points. I won't go through them all, but I've put in red affordability because that very much maps to the economic access to food. It's an important met- a metric because it combines the, the price of food with the amount of money I have to spend on it. So it's, it's a better metric for a food security discussion than just the price of food. Um, the nutritional value, obviously important. I'd also like to draw attention to the social value of food its function in society is very important. We all enjoy it um, as a meta-substance, as a meta-material, perhaps without realizing it. It helps define our culture, it helps define ourselves. It has a role in kinship, in family um, uh, uh, meals and the like. It has a role in religion, a religious function of food. So there are some meta-values that need to be encompassed as well as the physical nature of food uh, material. Um, All of those activities also contribute to uh, the climate change story because they all contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. And what we see here is a chart for greenhouse gas emissions across those five major areas or major sets of activities for the food system. And you'll see that something under half in the UK is related to production, which means something over half is related to everything else. And when we're talking about mitigation and how we can um, change our food system so that it actually uh, emits less greenhouse gases, we mustn't forget that there's the 55% in the UK of things we do that are all uh, possible to do in a different way, in a more efficient way. In the United States, the chart is a little different. Uh, The United States grows more of its own food domestically So it has a higher proportion from the producing sector. But nonetheless, you can see significant wedges uh, for the other food system activities. And by marked contrast, in India, we see a wholly different picture, um, for perhaps obvious reasons. But nonetheless, there are opportunities to be made in in, uh, all of of the, uh, the activities, but principally in the producing. And that's all to do with input use efficiency, in the farming system, which is um, a whole nother a whole talk. But nonetheless, nitrogen use efficiency is a case in point. Water use efficiency that Bill's alluded to, particularly in the endogenic Plain, is, is a serious concern. And it, it is not a given that the current technologies will be able to continue supplying food in the way that are needed. The graphs from Polly and et cetera make that point. So when we're talking about mitigation, what can we do? What we have here is some data from the UK from a study uh, last year, um, and it just makes a point. It makes a number of points. First of all, the, quote, average diet um, is about nine kilos of CO2 equivalent per person per day. And in- that includes avoidable waste. So the first key thing is avoidable waste. It is avoidable. Nonetheless, there's about nine kilos of CO2 per person today, day. And what we can do as individuals, as societies, to uh, change that is, uh, you see here, the first point um, is this estimate says eliminating meat from the diet would reduce food-related greenhouse gases by about a third. I'm not advocating vegetarianism, I'm reporting data. (laughs) Changing from um, greenhouse gas intensive meats to less intensive meats would have a marked effect as well. And you can see the figure there. Um, significantly, cutting out all avoidable food waste could reduce by about 10 or 12%. And it's called avoidable. Now, that's because not all food waste is avoidable. There, is, there are some aspects of food waste which we just can't do anything about because there's, a, there's a, a cost-benefit analysis to be done. And don't forget that many of the retailers would like us to not reduce food waste because it would effectively mean we're not buying so much. So there is an issue there. And then, of course, there's business of air miles, food miles, and all the rest of it, um, particularly hothouse food. If we were to avoid that, then we would perhaps be reducing by mm, a small amount. So there's a lot of hype about some of these ideas, and depending on your your particular worldview and your lobby, you may think these figures are wrong. Nonetheless, these are the data as presented in in the literature, and if you have a particular thing about reducing food miles by all means expound on that but be aware that it might not have as big an impact as changing diet. So if we think about this food security definition again and where we are today across the population of the globe we see um, uh, a number of uh, simple boxes here. On the left we have about a billion people who don't have sufficient calorie and they don't have sufficient nutrients. The hungry billion. We next see a further 2 billion who may have sufficient calorie, but um, have insufficient nutrients. We need about 50 nutrients for a healthy life. Over on the extreme right, the latest data from a big meta-analysis in The Lancet um, estimates in excess of 2.5 billion of us are excess calories, overweight and obese, and including some of those people who don't have sufficient nutrients. That's an important point. So the calculation derives of the current global population, there's about 3 billion of us who've got it about right. That's less than half. And as one sees the newspaper headlines about the hungry billion, it would be interesting if we saw newspaper headlines about the fact that the food system is effectively failing over one in two of us. It would be a very different take, wouldn't it? So the notion that that adequate nutrition is essential for um, good sustainable development for Australia, for for Britain, or for India, wherever you are, is very true. And this report came out last week uh, from IFPRI, the Global Nutrition Report. And it's uh, it's the first of a series of reports that will be tracked year on year. And it makes the opening statement that nearly every country in the world experiences some form of malnutrition. Now malnutrition doesn't mean under. It means under and over. Mal means bad. So be be very clear in language. If we're talking about undernutrition, we say under. If we're talking about over, we say over. They are both forms of mal and the uh, inadequate nutrition, of course, and nutrients is part of that. And the second point it makes is that We are now, we have now got a new norm as they say, that we are dealing with these overlapping forms of malnutrition. In a single country, in a single town, in a single household, you can have people who are over consuming and you can have people who are under consuming. And this is an extraordinary phenomenon. What we see here is the fact that as wealth increases, we tend to eat a more energy dense diet. And we've got um, up at the, the top uh, right um, in the, quote, developed countries, averaging about 3,500, uh, 3.3,000 kilocalories a day. Um, at the bottom left in sub-Saharan Africa, they're averaging just over 2.2 kilocalories per day. And um, we see a range uh, very closely related to GDP at the national level. The more interesting graph, which I have yet to find, is the graph put against the personal disposable income. Because across the world, it's really an issue of wealth, not geography. This is a simplistic take, but nonetheless, there is a message. What we see is uh, some data to support that sentiment. Uh, These pie charts are, uh, as you see, a proportion of where our calorie comes from, and the size of the pie relates to the number of calories on a, on a national average. So down at the bottom the global average is about 2,800 calories where the recommended amount for male is about 2,500 and for female about 2,000. So as a global average we are over consuming. We see at the top a US, UK, Australia slightly less than UK, a little bit less than US. India, somewhat under, and you go through to other parts of the world and you see um, significantly less than the recommended average. So there's a huge variety of of situations. And the other thing, of course, is the the shape of the pie. And um, in uh, North Korea, for instance, the bulk of the calorie, of not very much calorie, is coming from grain. And so the fact that there's a lot of um, uh, insufficient calorie coming from other food types is part and parcel of the poor nutrition. Looking ahead, um, this graph from Goldman Sachs makes um, an estimate of the expanding world middle class and think back to the graph about what happens when we get richer and the fact that our diet changes and gets more energy intense. And we see the, the major blue blue hump is the world estimate of um, expanding number of millions of people. Uh, an extra 3 million people, um, uh, beg your pardon, billion people, 3 billion people will be in the, quote, middle class. And they will be able to afford a much richer diet. If we again think about the uh, consequence of that, this um, is a headline from a few days ago which heralded the report by McKinsey that for the first time had put a a major um, analysis on the table. It estimated that the the burden of of, um, uh, overweight and obese on the global economy is in the order of $2 trillion a year. Now that is a a very big number. It doesn't actually mean very much to me. So what they say is that that is about the same as the, um, the cost of armed conflict or or the whole smoking epidemic. So it's a very serious uh, hit. And as as you see, I've just lifted out for ease of reading, unless trends are curbed, half the global adult population will be overweight in 15 years' time. What are the consequences of that? In this slide, um, it's an indicative slide. It's not to scale, but it's to make a point. I've plotted for the year 2000 Approximate figures, a billion people along the bottom, we've got about six billion on the planet um, 15 years ago. Um, We had about a billion or so with too too much, about um, rather over a billion with too little, and the balance about right. Now this is just calorie, it's not nutrient at all, just calorie. And in green, you see a sort of average 2200 um, as a recommended diet. Here we are in, in, in 2014. We've got 7 point something billion on the planet. Um, we've got uh, still about a billion with too little. We've got um, approaching, well, over 2 billion with too much. And the proportion with the appropriate amount is beginning to change. If we go forward another decade, we've got another billion people on the planet. Almost certain, almost certain. So we're up to 8.3 billion people and what we're seeing is a bit of a kink in this, so that the too much is growing much faster. And this is to do with the wealth increase. Look at the McKinsey, uh, I beg your pardon, the Goldman Sachs graph, showing the increase in the middle class. But what we're also beginning to see, and this is a speculation, but it's saying that we're beginning to see the uh, uh, proportion of people with too little beginning to go up again. And this is of great concern. If we project forward again to the nine and a half billion estimate for 2040, 2050, it doesn't really matter. But the point is that if the trend continues, we're going to see wealth continuing to increase. The um, um, uh, McKinsey report was saying half the population will be overweight. So I've put it at about four, four out of nine. So what we've got there is a significant issue to deal with. And why is it significant? Partly because the greenhouse gas emissions and the climate change consequences of that level of consumption will be simply massive using current technologies. The consumption trends are are I think there for us to see. What we do about it in terms of satisfying demand is the issue. The impacts of this excess consumption by half the planet on the non-communicable diseases will be massive. Already in China, um, over 50% of the adult population are pre-diabetic. They've got um, blood glucose above, uh, well above the normal range. 12% are diabetic and about 4% are being treated. That is a very large number of people with a huge cost to the public purse. And the overall cost of obesity, 2 trillion a a year from the um, McKinsey report we've just seen. So what have we got to do? We've got to somehow manage this overconsumption. And a lot of the emphasis on the food security debate is to do with the hungry, and that is very correct and proper. But we have got to balance up the debate because in terms of the impact of this graph, the footprint is on the left. It's not on the right. And if the environmental conditions begin to undermine the ability for the smallholder or even the large farmer to produce, we're going to see the number of hungry rising. And this is very, very significant because that brings all sorts of civil disturbance which has a political implication and we see a general breakdown of many areas of society. I don't wish to be alarmist, but at the same time, I do think there is a real point to be made that unless we take more time to discuss consumption and managing consumption, if we only concern ourselves with how do we help the smallholder farmer improve their lot, we've effectively got an ostrich problem where the head in the sand is over on the right and the body is on the left. And this is something that we need to be aware of. So there are a number of ways forward. Um, In the UK, we had a big exercise to establish some priority research questions. Here we are in the university context. We are researchers. Um, This, broadly speaking, broke down into three areas, technical, institutional, and behavioral. Here are just some of the example questions that are researchable questions, uh, answers to which would be very, very valuable for society at large, but for business and for enterprise, for the academic world, and for the policy community. You can read them as as they stand on on the board here. But perhaps the most important one is at the bottom, which is the behavioral issues. How can we understand why it is we do what we do in such a way that we can come up with a tangible way forward without creating a kickback? How can we present and package a changed way of uh, managing the food system in such a way that we are not all very, very upset? So I leave you with the question. We've got the uh, decision at societal level on managing the food system to mitigate the aspects that contribute to climate change, to adapt to the inevitable change that is coming down the track in such a way that the last slide with the slopes is effectively a slide of equity, not just of calorie. So there's a big job to do. And I think there's a fantastic opportunity For the research community, particularly the young researchers who have a research career ahead of them, to get in there and help sort it out. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, John. There you go, Gen Y. Get going. Um, Debbie Hunt.
3: Clearly, I'm not as tall as the other speakers. Um, Firstly, I too would like to acknowledge that we're here today on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and pay my respects to their Elders, past and present. Uh, So, I'm speaking on Oxfam's report, Hot and Hungry, today, and how to stop climate change derailing the fight against hunger. As already mentioned um, by both uh, Professor Pritchard and Dr Ingram, um, food security is not about production, it's about people's ability to access the food they need. Recent statistics from the FAO show that one in nine people are going to bed hungry every single day. And while Oxfam is very aware that climate change is not the only cause of hunger, according to the IPC's latest report, Um, Climate change will undoubtedly exacerbate the problem of hunger, suggesting global production will fall at a rate of 2% per decade, and critically that these reductions in production will happen at a time in which demand for food is expected to rise at 14% per decade. Uh, So we know that extreme weather events impact food security, but there are other more marginal shifts in weather patterns that are already occurring that are reducing both production and income for agricultural workers around the world. Millions of poor people across Central America are facing hunger as a result of shifting patterns of rainfall and increasing temperatures. For example, in Guatemala the total amount of rainfall is actually increasing But significantly, there is less rainfall during critical growing times in the crop cycle, which is taking a heavy toll on harvest. In the last two years, small-scale farmers have lost over 80% of their maize crop due to drought in the growing period. High temperatures, heavy rains and dry periods have also given rise to coffee rust, which has infected over 70% of coffee plantations, and it's estimated that 22% of the coffee crop has been lost during 2013-2014, with smallholder farmers the worst affected. An estimated 200,000 jobs will be lost due to the coffee rust, and loss of employment and product has meant that people are struggling to feed themselves and their families. In 2013, there was a 30% decrease in consumption of beans and corn, the staple foods of the country. So food price is a problem for us all. Over the last six years there have been three global food price spikes in 2008, 2010 and 2012. These are closely associated with reduced supply, driven in part by climate change related extreme weather events and shifting rainfall patterns. Oxfam has documented the impacts of high and volatile food prices on people across 10 developing countries. And the research shows that people undertake a number of coping strategies, including working longer hours, cutting back on more costly and preferred foods, particularly protein-rich fish and meat, buying cheaper and less nutritious food, shopping in bulk for discounts, growing, gathering and processing their own food, shopping in small quantities to manage daily incomes, borrowing, begging, stealing, cutting out on portions, cutting out on meals, and going hungry. Rising food price is not just a problem for the developing world. The cost of food in the UK has risen by 30.5% in the last five years and has exacerbated other pressures such as unemployment, low wages, and the removal of social protection, making it harder for for people to feed themselves. This has actually led to a tripling of food bank usage in 2013. So um, Oxfam has assessed the extent to which our global food system is prepared for the impacts of climate change by looking at 10 areas of national and global food and climate policy. There are many important determinants of hunger including income levels, demographic trends and conflict, which are not included here. Similarly, tackling the impacts of climate change on food will require action ac- across a much broader range of policies and practices than just these 10 areas. Indeed, climate change should be mainstreamed across all food policy. However, Oxfam's experience and the wider academic literature suggest that these 10 factors will have a major influence on whether countries are fit to feed themselves in a warming world. While our results show a great deal of variability in preparedness between and within countries, the global picture is of a food system that is dangerously unprepared for the impacts of climate change. It indicates that many countries, rich and poor, are not going to be prepared for the climate impacts on food. But it is the poorest and most food insecure countries that are always the furthest behind in these important areas of food policy and practice. So climate change impacts that are already locked in do not make hunger inevitable if the right action is taken, as illustrated by countries that appear to be bucking the trends of food insecurity and climate risk. So this um, graph's also a little bit confusing, but you will be able to see in the first um, box there, at the top is Nigeria and at the bottom is Ghana. They are both lower middle income countries in West West Africa, Facing comparable levels of climate risk. Yet Ghana consistently outscores Nigeria on key food and climate adaptation policy measures, including many of those assessed in this briefing, such as social protection, public spending on agricultural research and development, weather station density. And though many challenges remain, Ghana enjoys a far higher level of food security and is better placed to tackle growing climate risks. In East Asia, Vietnam and Laos, both middle income countries facing comparable levels of climate risks. And while Vietnam does um, benefit from higher agricultural land and other ecological advantages, it also consistently outscores Laos on measures such as social protection, crop irrigation, and access to clean water, helping it achieve better than average food security. Laos faces worse than average food security challenges. And Malawi outperforms most other Sub-Saharan African countries on food security indicators. Compared with Niger, Malawi scores higher on key measures such as social protection coverage, crop irrigation, overall public investment in agriculture, and spending on agricultural research and development. While few countries are adequately prepared for increasing levels of climate risk, These countries do seem to show that the right policies and measures can make a vital difference to food security in a warming world. Uh, So I'm going to individually go through um, the 10 areas now. So the first area was adaptation finance, and the global score is less than 1 out of 10. Uh, At the Copenhagen Summit in 2009, world leaders promised to provide $100 billion dollars per year by 2020 to help poor countries adapt to a changing climate and reduce their emissions. They also committed to providing $30 billion of fast-start finance between 2010 and 2012. This money was to be balanced between adaptation and mitigation. Fast-start finance has not been balanced. Uh, Adaptation has received no more than 20% of funds at best, but even 50% would be far too low to meet the estimate needs which are currently calculated to be $100 $100 billion per year for adaptation alone. While this seems like an awful lot of money, it's actually equivalent to just 5% of the wealth of the world's 100 top billionaires. Uh, Gap 2 is social protection and the global score here is 3 out of 10. So the poorest people spend the highest proportion of their income on food and are the worst affected when food crisis hits. Social protection programs including school feeding, cash transfers and employment guarantee schemes are a proven way of ensuring access to food, keeping children in school and preventing people from having to sell off vital assets such as livestock. While most industrialised countries ensure that the majority of their population is covered by some form of social protection, globally, just 20% of people have adequate social protection. And in many poor countries, such as Zambia, Malawi and Laos, coverage is less than 5%. However, coverage is notably higher in poor countries that are bucking the trend of food insecurity and climate risk, for example, in Malawi. Malawi, Ghana, and Vietnam, where coverage reaches 21, 28, and 29% of people, respectively. Uh, so, gap three is food crisis aid. Uh, humanitarian aid is the last line of defence for people facing climate impacts on hunger. Each year, the UN appeals for aid to help people in humanitarian emergencies. On average, over the past decade, 66% of all the funds requested have been provided. However, the cost of humanitarian aid is sharply increasing and the gap between funds requested and those committed is steadily widening. And the annual humanitarian funding shortfall has approximately trebled since 2001. Uh, So gap four is the food stocks gap and the global score here is six out of 10. Food stocks are a crucial buffer against hunger in the event of erratic harvest and food price spikes driven by extreme weather events. In recent years, the ratio of food stocks to food consumption has fallen to levels which are very low by historic standards. Each year in the past decade, stocks to use ratio has fallen below the long-term 25-year average, with the lowest ratios coinciding with the significant world food price spikes in 2007, 2008. This decline in stocks-to-use ratio is in part due to shocks um, to production from extreme weather events, diversion of crops to meet demands for biofuel, and the lack of attention paid um, to adequate public and private stockholding. For developing countries, rising food prices has made investing in building food reserves much more challenging. And a world facing increasing production disruptions and food price instability due to climate change needs a bigger buffer than it has at present. One way to address this is for developing countries to build their own local, national or regional public reserves. According to the UN FAO, 35 countries released public stocks during the 2007-2008 crisis. And in India, a massive purchase of rice and wheat in 2008 enabled the government to release sufficient stock into the market to stabilise prices and prevent many thousands of people sliding into hunger. So gap five is the gender gap. Women make up 43% of the agricultural workforce in the developing countries and play a vital role in food production and preparation around the globe. As a result, the impact of climate change on food is felt particularly sharply by women. We know that adaptation carried out with women in mind results in improved yields and greater food security, as well as reducing workloads for women and their families. Rural women have a wealth of knowledge about seeds, crops, water and land management and are well positioned to develop strategies to adapt to climate change and reduce its impact on communities and livelihoods. Women give us our best chance of producing enough good food in a warming world, but many things conspire against their efforts to do so. For example, less than 5% of women in West Asia and North Africa own land. This means they don't have an incentive to invest in the land and they can't make choices about how it is farmed. Women are also shut out from vital weather information, including early warning systems about extreme weather that may affect their crops, livestock and often their lives. Uh, Gap 6 is public agricultural investment. So up to 80% of hungry people in the world are small-scale food producers and others whose livelihoods depend on farming and natural resources. This makes them especially vulnerable to climate impacts. Adequate levels of public investment in agriculture are vital to ensure they receive the support needed to build their resilience. Official development assistance to agriculture has been slashed during the last 30 years. Falling from around 43% in the late 1980s to around 7% today. Uh, Gap 7 is the agricultural research gap. Uh, The global score here is two out of 10. So global seed diversity has declined by 75% in the last 100 years, depriving communities of native varieties that may be better suited to changing local weather patterns. The development of new and rediscovery of old seed varieties adapted to changing weather and growing conditions is therefore crucial. Public investment in agricultural R&D lags behind in the countries that need it most. For every $100 of agricultural output, developed countries spend $3.07 on public agricultural research and development, whereas developing countries spend just $0.55 on average. Countries that are bucking the food and climate trends, such as Malawi and Ghana, are investing more in agricultural research. Uh, Gap 8 is the crop irrigation gap. So over 90%, oh sorry, over 80% of world agriculture and 95% of African agriculture is rain fed, and at the mercy of changing rainfall patterns and intensity. In a warming world where seasons are less predictable, access to responsible, sustainable irrigation is crucial, especially in hot and dry regions. Uh, Gap nine is the crop insurance gap. Insurance can make a huge difference to farmers' ability to cope with climate change-related shocks by providing compensation to cover losses, improve credit availability and ensure a more regular income. In Bolivia, Oxfam has helped the government to set up a national agricultural insurance scheme to increase the resilience of small-scale producers. To date, 60,000 people have accessed agricultural insurance through this scheme, and 90,000 hectares of crops have been protected. The majority of farmers across the globe, however, are not covered by crop insurance. While 91% of farmers in the US have crop insurance, this compares with 50% in Australia, 15% in India, 10% in China, and just 1% or less in Malawi and most low-income countries. Inequities in coverage are thrown into stark relief in the wake of extreme weather events such as the recent super typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines and the 2012 droughts in US and Russia. So in the 2012 drought in the US, uh, 75% of total crop losses were insured. In Russia it was 28% and in the Philippines it was just 6%. Uh, So gap 10 is the weather monitoring gap and the global score here is 3 out of 10. Providing good weather data is an important way of helping farmers to cope with changing climate. In Thailand and Zimbabwe, Oxfam is investing in projects to improve weather forecasting and give farmers more certainty about when and what to plant and harvest. Yet the concentration of weather stations varies hugely around the world. Ironically, countries which are most vulnerable to climate change impacts on food have the lowest concentration of weather stations. In California, there is a weather station every 2,000 square kilometres, whereas in Chad there is a weather station only every 80,000 square kilometres, an area roughly the size of Austria. The potential difference between a farmer and a weather station in Chad is so great that the information provided could be for a completely different type of climate from the one his farm is on. It's like looking up the weather in Munich to decide whether you need to wear a coat in Rome. So limits to adaptation. While governments have agreed to limit global warming to two degrees and more than 100 of the most vulnerable countries maintain that a 1.5 degree limit is needed, we are not currently on track to meet either. Perhaps the gravest gap we face in fighting hunger in a warming world is the emissions gap between projected greenhouse gas levels in 2020 and the levels needed to keep the 1.5 degree target within reach. As we have already heard, even today, irreparable and unavoidable loss and damage to agricultural land and fisheries are already taking place. It is clear that if we are to ensure that we, our children and families around the world, have enough to eat, urgent and ambitious emissions reduction are needed now alongside a massive increased support for adaptation. So how do we actually stop climate change making people hungry? Despite the mounting threat of climate change, hunger is not inevitable. Oxfam is calling for the following urgent actions by governments, businesses and individuals to stop climate change making people hungry. We need to build people's resilience to hunger and climate change. We need to enshrine the legal right to food in national laws and company policies. We need to protect access to food for all by addressing the gaps in humanitarian aid in food crisis, ensuring comprehensive coverage of social protection programs and rebuilding food buffer stocks. We need to support small-scale food producers by increasing public and private investment, ensuring small-scale farmers, and especially women, have access to land, water, and seeds. We need to tackle the infrastructure crises, including crop irrigation and storage. We need to extend crop insurance and strengthen weather data collection and dissemination, and ensure that national adaptation policies are consistent with the right to food. We need to, sorry. We uh, need to slash greenhouse gas emissions. Governments need to commit to a fair and deep cut in emissions to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. We need to cut emissions from food and beverage sector supply chains. We need to shift finance away from the fossil fuel industry into low carbon development and scale up renewable energy for the poorest people. We need to secure an international agreement that tackles climate change and hunger. Enhance efforts to achieve a fair, ambitious and legally binding climate change agreement in 2015. To deliver on promises of climate finance of $100 billion a year for the poorest countries by 2020 with much more going to adaptation. And prepare for new commitments for the post-2020 period. We need to support a target of zero hunger by 2025 in a post-2015 framework. And we need to take action into our own hands. Use your voice to insist that governments and companies act to stop climate change making people hungry. Make choices about the way we live our lives, including cutting food waste, reducing meat consumption, and asking our favourite food brands to act responsibly. If we all put a concerted effort into doing all of these things, then it is possible we will grow a future where everybody has enough to eat. If you want to find out more, please visit oxfam.org. Thank you.